turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter chapter 2, Romans chapter 2. And the title of our message this morning is No Excuses. So uh, kind of an intimidating title in a sense, but um, God wants to encourage us through his word. So uh, let's pray. Jesus, again, we open up your word and we ask that your Holy Spirit would now produce that fruit in us. God, that you would help us to not only understand what you have for us, but God, that our hearts would be open to change. That, Lord, we wouldn't be, um, Lord, we wouldn't be closed to correction. Lord, if our thinking is off, then, then help our thinking to align with yours. And God, I pray that you would bless um, just this reading of your word and the studying of it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, you can roll up your sleeves and... Uh, Get ready because this is going to be kind of a fast-paced um, study in Romans towards the end of chapter 1 and going into chapter 2. But you know, I also want to make sure that our hearts are open to the Lord because what we're going to see in Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2 are going to be some words that are written, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by Paul, that in our culture today really go directly headlong um, in conflict with our culture at times. And what I have to realize is that when I'm reading God's word and I open it up and I'm reading something and it contradicts my thought life or my, my way of life or my patterns, I'm the one that has to make that adjustment because God is the one that is trying to reach out to me. And so in doing so, when we read the book of Romans, Paul writes to the Roman church um, and he, he writes to people that he hasn't met yet. As we looked at next uh, last week, uh, we, we talked about how as Paul was writing to this place in Rome, it was kind of like the Mecca, the center of culture. It was the place in which if you reach Rome, then you reach the world. Kind of like the way that you would reach Manhattan or New York, or you would reach Hollywood today or Washington, D.C. in the United States. It's from those places that the rest of the world is kind of reached. And so as Paul wrote to the Romans, he said in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, that I am not ashamed of the gospel. And he explained that um, the, the reason why he's not ashamed, it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And after Paul explained that he's not ashamed, another way of saying that is I'm proud of the gospel. And the reason why I'm proud of the gospel, it's because it's how a person is saved. The gospel is how a person is changed. It's how a person is transformed. And then the next thing is we find out that he goes into this um, section in verses 18 through 32 of the wrath of God. Now, Mother's Day, what a great topic, right? We looked at the wrath of God last week. But if you were here uh, last week, I think that you would agree with me that, that God's word, it confronts us, but he's also very gracious. He shows us errors of our ways, but then he always leaves us with hope. And the hope of God is also associated with the wrath of God. Now, for those of us that when we think about the wrath of God, it might be a topic today where it's not a very popular topic. You will not go to a, a Christian bookstore or any other bookstore for that matter and find bestsellers list, you know, the title, The Wrath of God. Because in our culture today, we are anti-wrath of God. In fact, in our culture today, we don't talk about sin a whole lot. And there are very few even churches at times that will talk about sin. And we live in this day and age in which sin has become a very unpopular 
topic. In fact, when you think about the love and grace of God and his mercy, which is a part of God's character and it's who he is, the overemphasis sometimes on only that part of it, 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 it becomes, in a sense, it, it loses its strength and it loses its weight unless we realize that we are saved from something in order to be saved to something. God's mercy and his grace is great when we realize that we need God's grace and mercy. But in a culture that really doesn't think about sin and doesn't even believe that sin exists in many ways and in many ways suppresses the truth, what ends up happening is the message of love and grace is accepted without the accountability that God calls us to to live a life that is in compliance with his word. So what happens when the pendulum swings one side or the other? I really believe that in the church, let's say going back 50 years, even 100 years, in our culture, there, there may have been some legalism that crept in. In American culture, there may have even been this um, unspoken thing that to be American was equal to being Christian. And just to be in America and just to say, well, I'm not atheist and I'm not Muslim and I'm not Hindu, I'm not any of those things, I must be a Christian. And there was this gen generalization that, that we're Christians because we're in a Christian nation. And in legalism sometimes, there could be this unspoken and sometimes spoken message that gets across that in order to be a Christian, it means you have to do all of these good things. In order to be saved, then you have to be moral and you have to act a certain way and behave a cer certain way. Now, what we realize from the gospel is this. When God changes us, when we become born again and regenerated, our life does change. Repentance is required. But realize this, it's not our morality that saves us. It's the grace of God and the blood of Christ shed for our sins that saves us. So when you have opposite extremes, you have to do these things. Growing up in a religious home, I thought that there were hoops that I had to jump through. I had to, I had to go to confirmation. I had to uh, go through these sacraments. There were certain things that I had to go through growing up that I thought that that was the way to salvation. The opposite extreme is that sometimes people only look at the love and grace of God and they avoid topics like the wrath of God and sin. And when we study scripture, we realize when we teach through a book of the Bible, it holds us to teaching God's, um, God's balance of the proportion in which he mentions these things. And in the book of Romans, it's important that we realize that in order, for, in order for the Romans to know the things that God could do for them, they had to also understand their need for God. I, I talked about last week that God doesn't, um, there, there are times that the biggest hindrance in a person coming to Christ is, is them thinking they don't need God. One of the biggest hindrances is people thinking, I'm good enough and, and there's nothing that needs to change in my life. Because my life is good. In fact, one of the biggest objections that you'll find today in Christianity when you try to preach the gospel to people is, you know what, that's good for you. But I don't need that. If that makes you happy, then great. But for me, I'm fine. I don't need this. So when we consider what God did, um, it says at the end of Romans chapter 1 that God gave them up to vile passions. It says in Romans 1.26, 
For even their women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. Now, I ended last week talking about how when sin is mentioned in the Bible, one of the mistakes that people can make when it deals with the sin of homosexuality is this. It's not to call it sin. It is sin to act upon those things. But let me tell you the other mistake. The other mistake is to single it out as a worse sin than other sins. So when we read the Bible, we have to understand that there are things in God's word that as culture changes and as times change, God's standard doesn't. There are some things that change as far as um, culturally, we don't wear head coverings anymore. That's a cultural thing. Because in that culture, when Paul was writing to the Corinthians, he was talking to people that, that in their culture, men with long hair, that was something that, that had a connotation with it. And women with very short hair had a connotation with it. That isn't in our culture today. But when it comes to God's standard of what is moral and what is right and wrong, we understand that those standards do not change. Now, here's a question. Because I, I, I thought it was important to come back to this before we get into Romans chapter 2. And the question is, but what if a person was born that way? Sometimes people will say, well, I was just, I was just born this way. And this is, you know, the way that I was born. And, and I really believe that um, many times statistics and teachings are way lower than, uh, you know, in recent times and beliefs that, that they're way lower than in reality that, that these people that are homosexual are born this way. But even if people are, even if someone says, I was born with this tendency, it wasn't something that happened to me, it wasn't something that because I was exposed to something, it was just the way I was born. I would say I was born a sinner. We were all born into sin. And we all have propensities for certain types of sin. Maybe for me, it's anger. Maybe for me, it's heterosexual sin. It's lust. Maybe that's the temptation. And all of us deal with temptations in our lives. But when God holds up a standard, because I feel a temptation towards something or a desire for something, doesn't mean that I should go ahead and act on that. Let me give you a couple of examples. When it comes to pornography... I really believe that in our church that the greater statistically um, needful thing to address is pornography because pornography is rampant in our culture. It is something that is not only accessible compared to how it was in the past, but it is also now acceptable and it's totally normal. It's something that everyone... In our culture, not everyone, but many people today, the majority think, hey, it's no big deal. You're just looking at a, a picture on a screen. It's not hurting anyone. It's a private thing. But yet in God's word, God says, no, if you lust for someone in your heart, then that's committing adultery in your heart. So just because there's a desire and a temptation for viewing those things doesn't mean that someone should give themselves over to those things. So if a person was born with a propensity towards anger or pornography or whatever that propensity of sin is, the important thing is, do we act upon that? Do we act upon that? Now at Gen 1, I had a friend come in um, and share 
uh, his struggles with same-sex attraction. And it was such a blessing because there was an openness. I, I really wanted to make sure that in Gen 1 that, that I told him, this is a group of loving, accepting people. You're not going to be judged. You're not going to be condemned. When I was pastoring the church in Gilroy, there was this brother in Christ that came and he shared with me probably about eight years ago now. And he said, I haven't told anyone that this is my struggle. And it has been for decades. And he felt so condemned by the church, the church in general, because he had been through many different religious experiences. And he felt like, I don't know who I could talk to. And you know, the cool thing is him sitting in my office, I shared with him, you know what? God loves you and your sin is no worse than my sin. Your temptation is no worse than my temptation. It's different. And you know, the freedom that that brought to him of being able to share, this is something that I struggle with. Now, he was a part of a group called Exodus International, which helped people to deal with um, their tendencies towards same-sex attraction and not acting out upon that. But within Exodus International, what's happened recently is that the group has kind of splintered because part of the group has gone really against the Bible and said, well, maybe, maybe we could just go this way and be monogamous within homosexuality. And as long as you love that person and it's only one person that you're with, then that would be okay. And I was so blessed by my friend who broke from Exodus and joined another group that said, biblically, that is not what the Bible says. And this is a brother in Christ that can share those things. And it is so important that we, as a body of Christ, as a church, and as Christians, represent Christ well when it comes to these things. God loves everyone. God reaches out to everyone. There's no partiality with God. But when it comes to repentance, we can't select. We don't, I don't have the right, even as a pastor, to say, well, these are some sins that we're going to accept, and these are sins that we're not going to accept. What we have to do is we have to open up God's word and say, God, what do you have to say on it? And what God has to say on this is very clear that God has um, made this very, um, very blatant, very clear in his word that God created marriage and it was his design. Now, I had an opportunity to go to Washington, D.C. a few years back and I was meeting with um, Bar- Barbara Boxer's chief of staff. We were in a meeting and there was just me and three other pastors and we were sitting there and we were talking about things and we wanted to come in and share with her, hey, we are pastors in California, so we have a constituency of people and these are things that are important to to people in our churches and this is is kind of where we're coming from. And her, her chief of staff said, this is what I don't understand about you guys. She said, if two people love each other, then what is wrong with that? And who are you to say what two people can love each other or can't love each other. And I said, well, first of all, you're misrepresenting our position. There is no law against loving one another, and everyone should love one another. But when it comes to marriage and when it comes to a couple being together in God's design, we believe that God designed us as male and female and that he, he ordained marriage. And she said, well, what if, what if two men or two women want to get married? You know, who are you to say that? So I asked her a question. I said, well, what if three men wanted to get married? I said, what would you say about that? Or what if two men and a woman wanted to get married? What would you say about that? She said, that's ridiculous. She goes, that's, that's preposterous. I said, why? She said, well, because marriage is between two people. I said, who says that? 
You know, who are you to say that marriage is only between two people? Because your standard, it, it's shifting. And the, what you're accusing us of is something that you're doing by saying that you have a standard and this is the standard in the way it should be. And we're saying it's not even our standard, it's God's standard. And so we, we explain that to her in a very loving way, but in also a very truthful way. And I really believe that the world today that we live in wants to hear the truth spoken in love. They want to hear people that are bold enough and love them enough to tell them the truth, but love them enough also not to judge them as though they are lower or beneath them or their sin is worse than their own sin. And so when we see this in Scripture, it's very important that by the time we get to chapter 2, Paul begins chapter 2 with this question. He says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Now, if we could think of Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2 in this way, if you know the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus told, Romans chapter 1 is like the prodigal son. Those are the sins that are obvious and they're kind of blatant. At the end of chapter 1, he goes into not only homosexuality, but then he also deals with um, those that are backbiters and haters of God and sexual immorality of many different types. He talks about covetousness and deceit and gossip and backbiters and all of these things. And then in chapter 2, this is more like the prodigal son's older brother. This is for those that think, well, I'm better than those other people. Chapter 2 really kind of deals with the religious group at times or sometimes the legalistic or self-righteous group that says my sin is not as bad as their sin. Now, let me explain this. When it comes to judging others and when it comes to, to sin, we have a way of looking at other people's sins as worse than our own sin. And have you ever realized that your own sin, my own sin, looks really bad on other people? So we notice our own sin in others. When someone is very arrogant and, and proud, we notice that, wow, that, that, that person, she's so arrogant, he's so proud. But we don't see the arrogance and pride in ourselves at times. And sometimes we can judge others and sit in this place. And the word judge, it, it's the word crino, which means this, to separate, to make a distinction, to pass sentence upon, or to give an opinion on a private matter. When we become judgmental of others, you know what we do? We separate. We divide. You know what happens is when we become judgmental of others, um, we begin to make a distinction between this type of sin and this type of sin. And we start to hold on to certain types of sin as acceptable, and other types we say, oh, that's, that's really bad. And what God says is this, you are inexcusable whoever you are who judge because you practice the same things. Now, our actions aren't always the same exactly as other people we judge, but we are guilty of sin nevertheless. For example, when it comes to sexual immorality, because this is what Paul is dealing with in the end of chapter one and in, in, in this part of scripture, we could judge another person's sexual immorality as worse than our own sexual immorality. And when Jesus addressed it, he said, it's in the heart. 
It's not only adultery in going out and committing the physical action. It's adultery within the heart that is sinful. And that's what God looks at. And so when someone judges another person, but yet in their own heart, there might be adultery going on in their own heart. What God is saying is this. You're guilty of that same thing. And you who judge, you are inexcusable. God also says this in verse 2. So God says there's no excuses. We're inexcusable, whoever we are. And he judges according to righteous judgment. It says in verse 2, we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. Now in God's righteous judgment, well, that's pretty small font. Um, (laughs) God judges according to truth. Let me explain it this way. God has all of the facts of the matter. God has all of the facts of the matter. God sees things more clearly than you and I see things. And according to God's truth, there is nothing that escapes, um, there's nothing that escapes his vision. We realize this, it's truth versus relativism. If something is true, it's true whether I believe it or not. Let me repeat that. If something is true, it is true whether I believe it or not. If I tell someone, you know what, I really, I really don't believe in the law of gravity. The law of gravity, I, I don't believe that. I believe that I can defy the law of gravity. And if I jump off of a cliff, even though I don't believe in the law of gravity, because the law of gravity is true, I will still fall down and I will still die or suffer the consequences even though I say that I don't believe that. And because God judges according to truth, his truth stands on its own. So the truth is a reference point. It's fixed. When relativism gets in the way, what happens is that people say, well, my truth is my own. Uh, I, I just want you to imagine, imagine this stool. If you were in a room and, and the room were uh, totally dark, no windows in the room, And in the middle, the exact center of the room, there was a stool. So if you felt the stool and you go, okay, there's something here. And then you you paced and you went five steps and then you got to a wall. Okay, then I went five steps back. I go five steps back to the stool. Then I go five paces over here. There's a wall. In my mind, I realize that there are five paces that side, five paces that side. And this is in the middle. And because this is fixed and it's stationary, I know that I could tell where I am in the room based on this. Now imagine if this is my thinking. Okay, if I know where the stool is, then I know where I am. So I'm just going to take it with me wherever I go. And I'm going to walk around in this room and I know wherever I am, if the stool is there, then I know where I am. It's no longer a fixed position because it just went with me. And when people say my truth is my truth, this is what they're doing. They're carrying their truth with them, deciding on every situation and in every ethical decision and moral decision, they're the ones that are deciding this is truth. But when God's word stands as something that is fixed and God is the righteous judge who judges according to truth, then that truth is something that is solid and it's anchored. And we could measure our lives against that because that does not change. So when it comes to God being the judge, and he's a judge according to truth, he asks these questions in verse 3. 
He says, do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the, the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? In other words, he's saying, do you think you could ju- judge others, do the same thing, and then escape God's judgment? Now, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 7. He said, judge not that you be not judged. For with whatever judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye. And look, there's a plank in your own eye. You hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will clearly see to be able to remove the speck from your brother's eye. When it comes to judging, um, there are people that don't read the Bible that aren't even a part of you know, a faith community, but that is the one verse that they know. That is their memory verse, you know? And then they know, hey, judge not, that you not be judged. And they, you know, they always talk about that. And I, I really believe the reason why they think about that and they say that a lot is they feel judged. Now, part of that is conviction of sin because their conscience within them tells them they're wrong. But a part of it sometimes could be even Christians that it sometimes could have a judgmental attitude and treat them differently. And we have to be very, very careful not to do that because God is the judge. Now, as God is the judge, it is not saying that we don't notice people's fruit. Uh, in fact, in Matthew chapter 7, same chapter, Jesus says, you'll know them by their fruits. So out of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you're around someone long enough, you find out what they're all about and, and what they believe and who they are. But it's important for us not to cast that judgment as though we are the ones that are deciding whether that person is saved or not saved based on outward signs or what we see sometimes. We don't know all of the truth that God knows. In fact, I believe that when we get to heaven, it's going to be an amazing thing to see a lot of people that we didn't expect to be there. And there are going to be some people that see you and me and go, wow, you're here? And they're going to think, hey, how did you make it here? So it's God's judgment. The second question he asks in verse four is this. Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Sometimes people mistakenly think, well, you know what? God hasn't really judged me yet. Lightning hasn't hit me. Nothing bad has happened. Um, There's no consequence. So I must be okay. God must not care. Maybe he doesn't exist. Maybe, maybe that God is even condoning my lifestyle. But Paul asks this question. He says, don't you realize, don't despise the riches, riches of his goodness. Don't, don't misunderstand that when God is patient and he's long-suffering, that that means that he's not still calling us to repentance. God's goodness and his mercy in balance with his righteousness and his judgment leads us to repentance. Notice it doesn't drive us to repentance. It's not something where he puts us under his thumb and he just presses down on us to repent. You know, when, when you're a kid, you probably had those wrestling matches. And, and I always had these wrestling matches with my brother. And it was like, are you gonna quit? And he would always be fascinated by my pain tolerance as a kid. 
Like, I will never give up no matter what. And he could have my arm twisted or he could have me in a headlock. He's like, okay, just say I give up. And he would just start laughing. And he's like, Matt, you never give up. And, and sometimes we think of God as doing that to us. No, God doesn't do that to us. It's his goodness that leads us to repentance. It's his mercy that leads us to repentance. God judges according to deeds in verse five. It says, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you treasure up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there is indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of anyone who does evil. Now, when it comes to God's wrath, like I, I said, it's not a very popular topic And yet God's wrath is very, very important. If you don't accept the wrath of God and you say a God of wrath must not be loving, a God of wrath must not be patient, he must not be good, a God of wrath, I could never believe in a God of wrath, I would venture to say that you've never suffered under intense persecution. Most people that say that a God of wrath is not a good God are people that have never suffered under the hand of ISIS. People that have never suffered under the hand of the Nazis during concentration camps. People that have never suffered in the gulags in the Soviet Union. Because when we read the book of Revelation, we find out that there are many that are saying, how long, O Lord, until you avenge us? I want to share with you that God's character is good, but part of his goodness is not only his mercy and his loving kindness, part of his goodness is that there is wrath. If God did not have wrath, I believe personally it would be very difficult to forgive my enemies and not take things into my own hands and retaliate. God says, the Bible says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And I really believe one of the things that actually leads to peace and us being peaceful and us trusting God to sort things out is this. God will sort things out. It's this no one escapes God's presence. It's this God is a righteous judge. Because if God were not a righteous judge and there were no wrath, then can you imagine telling people that are being persecuted and are literally being killed? I I mean, in the Rwandan genocide, um, Gary Haugen, the founder of International Justice Mission, was the, the emissary from the United States to go to Rwanda to investigate, to find out, are these things true? Are, is there really a genocide as bad as, as we're hearing about? When he landed in Rwanda, he got off the plane and he went to one of the sites in which over 50,000 villagers were slaughtered. I remember that struck me so heavily because think about the the population of santa cruz it's about sixty thousand. imagine fifty thousand people women children babies he walked into an open grave in which he stood there and he saw bodies of people that had been macheted to death and he stood over two girls that had just been killed that were the same ages as his two daughters 
And he said, I stood there and I started to tremble. And I broke and I started to weep and I began to shake. And not only was my heart broken, but my prayer changed. And I said, God, please do something about this. And if God is not also a God of wrath, that in the end, there will be this final judgment, then how can you tell people to turn the other cheek? How can you tell people to not respond in violence when violence is happening to them if there's no God that sees and knows these things and will handle these things? I really believe that knowing that there is a God of wrath leads me to peace because I could trust God that in the end, he's going to sort things out. And I could also trust this, that God who is a God of wrath is also a God of mercy that gives the way to not have to suffer that wrath to anyone that would humble themselves. And I can't stand above others to say, I don't deserve God's wrath, but you do. No, at the foot of the cross, it's all level. And we all come to this place of need and in humbleness and humility saying, God, I need you because I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. So in God's wrath, he judges according to deeds. And these deeds don't save a person. They simply show what is in a person. In the book of James chapter two, it says one person says that he has faith. Another says he has works, but I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, faith without works is what? It's dead. Because if I say that I believe God and that he has come into my life and I've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, there should be a difference between my value system and what I see as justice and love and what is important in life. Because if there is no change, then I have to wonder whether or not I've truly received God's grace and I've really surrendered over to him. So God judges according to deeds. God also judges with impartiality. It says in verse nine at the end of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. I love that. There is no partiality with God, no social economic status, no race. There's no heritage or background or education level. God shows no favoritism. Do you remember when Jesus died on the cross that it says that the veil of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom and they could hear the, they could hear the ripping of it, this, this thick fabric. And the veil of the temple, it, it stood between the inner part of the sanctuary and what was called the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies represented where God's presence dwelt. And when the veil ripped from the top to the bottom, you know what that represented? It meant that we could now go to that holy of holies. We could go to the presence of God because Jesus has paved the way. He's died for our sins. And now that door that was closed to us is open. And you know what? When it says that there's no partiality with God, all of us can enter in. Check this out. There's no VIP passes. You don't have to stand in line and be first up and then like, okay, there were 200 allotted places to come into God's presence, but those have been taken now. You know, 144,000 are taken and now you can't be a part of it. No, it is open. And because that veil has been torn and there is no partiality, we could all come to the Lord, no matter what our background, no matter what you've done, no matter what you have done, 
There is no thinking, I am a second-class Christian because, man, before coming to Christ, or even, even in my past, there, there's some horrible, horrible things. You know what? God will cast your sin as far as the east is from the west. And I love the fact that he says east from the west because you don't know where the east begins and where the west begins, right? Because you travel east far enough, eventually you're headed west. Keep going east. And if you keep going east, you end up in the same place again. And, and we, we are east compared to some other people that are farther west than we are. But north and south have a pole. There's a north pole and a south pole. And the word of God, the Bible, doesn't say that God has separated my sin as far as the north is from the south. He says as far as the east is from the west. It is utterly cast out. God also judges according to law and conscience. And we're going to end in verse 16. I'm going to read this to you. It says, for as many, starting verse 12, for as many as have sinned without law, they will also perish without law. And as many have sinned in the law, they will be judged by the law. By the way, the law is speaking of the Old Testament. It's speaking of God's law, not just all law, but, but God's law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Now, verses 12 and 13 say this. If you have the law of God, so the Jews have the law of God. They have God's commandments. And if they are trying to be justified, if any of us are trying to be justified before God based on following this command, the commandments of, of the Bible, it means that we have to be 100% and follow all of God's commandments. So if I say, well, I'm following God's commandments, that's why God would take me to heaven because I'm following God's commandments. Oh, really? Have you ever broken any of those commandments? Well, yeah. Okay, then you're gonna be judged by that law. So then the question is this. But what about those who have never heard? What about those that don't know the law? This addresses it in verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts either accusing or excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So, those with the law will be judged by the law. What about those that have never heard God's law or God's commandments? They will be judged according to conscience. And have any of you ever gone through life without sinning against your conscience? Have you ever felt like I shouldn't do this? but I did, or I, I should do this, but I didn't. All of us have sinned against our conscience. There is no person other than Christ that has lived a sinless life, and every time their conscience was, was you know, you shouldn't do this, then they were right in line with their conscience. I mean, how many of us have regrets? Words that we said to someone that hurt them, that if we could take those words back, we would, but it's too late. Those things... Even though our conscience said, don't say it. Have you ever been in that place? You're angry, you're holding your temper, you're holding your tongue, and you're saying, okay, I don't wanna say it, I don't. Boom, you just blast them. And then you, after you blast them, you're like, why did I say that? Because we're not perfect. And as people who are not perfect, let me close with this. God judges according to law and conscience, but for those of us that have received Christ, 
God judges according to the gospel in verse 16. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. If I announced, hey, next Sunday morning, uh, there is this new technology that, um, you know, it's, a, it's an app on someone's smartphone that it records their thoughts, their secret thoughts. And next week, we're going to show the thoughts, the secret thoughts of five people. And I put on here, these are the five names that have that app that we are going to show their secrets. This place would be packed out except for those five people. Those five people would not be there. And if it was you, you would, I would not be here. That's a scary thing. God judges the secrets of our hearts. And you know what? He judges the secrets of our hearts according to the gospel. That means this. If I believe in Christ and what he has done for me, every sin that I commit, every thought, every unrighteous deed, every act, every motive that is wrong is covered by God. Because I have humbled myself and by faith, I've received Jesus's penalty on the cross that I say, Jesus, thank you for dying for me. That's what regeneration is being born again, being converted, being saved. That's what it's all about. And what Paul is getting us to, he's being an incredible attorney, isn't he? Incredible prosecuting attorney. Because at the end of it, across all of us is this word guilty. But you know what? Jesus writes across it. And by his blood that was shed for us, he writes forgiven to anyone that would humble themselves and say, God, please forgive me. And you know what that does? It causes us not to be self-righteous. You know what that does? It causes us to be humble and to love others and to realize they need the same Savior that I need. And it causes fellowship. And it causes our hearts to go out to others, not in judgmentalism, but in the desire to get the message out to them because they too need a Savior just like I need a Savior. So as we pray, I'm gonna have the worship team come up. And I'm going to ask this question, have you ever surrendered your life to Christ? Have you ever said, Jesus, would you forgive me for my sin? And I surrender to you. Because in the same way that I talked about the wrath of God and sin not being mentioned very often in our culture, let me tell you another word that is not mentioned very often in our culture. It's the word repentance. And the word repentance is a good word. You know what it means? It means we could change. You know what it means? It means that God allows U-turns. So we're going to sing this song. We're going to worship the Lord together. And let's ask God to examine our hearts, to search our hearts. And then I'm also going to pray at the end, if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, right where you are, just that prayer, I'm going to lead you in a prayer if that's something that you would desire. So let's pray. Father, we want to thank you. We thank you for the truth of your word that you haven't left us to try to figure this all out on our own, but God, you have made things just very clear to us that without you, we can't be saved. So Jesus, I pray that, first of all, for anyone here that doesn't know you, that today would be that day where they surrender. They trust and say, God, I trust you with my life. I surrender to you. Would you please forgive me? And then, Lord, for those of us that are followers of Christ, I really ask that you would help us to 
be grateful, that you would help us to be humble. Help us, Lord, not to sit in judgment of others. And I do pray for boldness and I pray for courage and love that would enable us to share the truth of the gospel with others. So God, as we worship you, would you minister to us as we sing to you and minister to you in Jesus' name.